Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is a special episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. What's so special about this episode, Vanessa? What makes this episode different from every other episode? Every once in a while, we think it's important to take a step back and reflect on how we got here, why it is that we think that the work that we do in this podcast is important. And so we thought that today would be a great time to talk about, obviously, a very key component to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which is reading, I have a suspicion that many of our listeners are big readers and have relationships to the practice of reading. So we thought that we could talk about reading and the role it plays in our lives as an invitation to our listeners to reflect on the role that reading has in theirs. That's interesting. I love this topic. Reading is important to me. And it's important to our listeners. And it's one of the reasons why we're here. I think reading is one of the most important things a person can do. Ooh. Not just reading in general, but just reading the way we talk about it. Reading is like a practice by which you can make yourself better and by extension, make the world better. So tell me, Vanessa, what role would you say that reading currently plays in your life? I am very lucky, Matt, because I get to read for work a lot. Sometimes I'll be sitting on a couch reading Pride and Prejudice and being like, I'm at work right now. And that is obviously like a tremendous privilege. I will say that it also means that I read a little bit less for pleasure than I would like to think I would otherwise do. And so 
I rarely, I feel like, do the thing that I love to do, which is like sit down with a big novel for many hours and read it slowly. I do that for work, which is really lucky. And then I I do a lot of research for work, which is also really lucky. But honestly, the role reading has in my life right now is I am a super listener of romance novels. I read non-romance novels too. I like to stay up on sort of current literary fiction, but I'd say that Mm -hmm. that is most of my reading. I don't do a ton Mm -hmm. of like nonfiction reading these days. I find that after work, what I'm really doing is reading, I mean, delightful, but like fiction for fun, sort of lighter fiction. What role would you like reading to play in your life? Like if you could set out your ideal, like reading sort of routine, Mm-hmm. I mean, presumably having reading as part of your work would be part of it because you enjoy reading. But it sounds like, at least in what you're saying, that like there's some form of reading which you lost time for has been, been pushed to the side a little bit because of other obligations. Like, What would it look like if you got to read what you wanted to read, how you wanted to read it, when you wanted to read it? I mean, I have this like in theory idea that I'm not sure I ever really accomplished. <laughs> and I yeah. just don't know if my attention span is even there anymore. And I worry that phones have broken my brain. But I have this like visual of me sitting somewhere quiet for long enough that I can be reading and then looking up and thinking and letting my mind wander for 20 minutes mm. and then going back to the book. And like sort of having that slowness and that intention that I don't feel like I have a lot of the time. I also worry that places like Goodreads have been really bad for my reading because I now worry about, you know, there are all these goals with reading. It's like, I'm going to read 52 books this year. Hmm. And I feel like that is psychologically bad because I like want to get through things quickly. But it's also just anxiety of dying that makes me want to get through things quickly. I'm like, there are some books I want to read. I sometimes do the math. If I read 50 books a year for the rest of my life, that only means 2,000 books. I got to get through this. So I wish I read more slowly okay, and for longer stretches of time. What about you? What's your relationship? I feel like it changes all the time. I feel like I have just sort of entered a reading sweet spot. Mm-hmm. recently. Like you, I have a job that requires that I read a lot. And I know that's a huge privilege. And I feel really lucky that I get to do a job that <laughs> where where I read a lot. I had a friend when I was a PhD student, I had a friend who was another PhD student. And she and I were talking and, you know, she was talking about how she had been working hard all day, like researching for her dissertation. And uh, her spouse came home and asked how her day was. And she was like, oh, I had a really hard day. I was working all day. And he was like, oh, you were you were reading interesting things all day at PhD camp that this was your this was your hard day like reading things I wish I could read while I was working in an office so I, yeah I my relationship to reading is interesting because I really do love to read but usually in my head I frame a lot of it as stuff I have to do not stuff I like to do right and so I like the Harry Potter series of books right and I have to read a chapter or two every week and just approaching a chapter that way is just different than picking up a book and reading it because it's fun or reading it because your kids want to read it and reading it to your kids or whatever. It just changes the framework. And usually part of the reading practice for me when I am reading for work is it takes me a page or two to like get out of that, oh, I'm doing this because I have to. And also, what else do I have to do? And there's something else I have to do after this. And the better the book is, the more easily I kind of slide into the book and just enjoy the book, right? And the Harry Potter books are pretty good at helping me do that because they're interesting and exciting and fun and um, and fun to read. You know, I teach a kind of rotation of classes. And so like a lot of what I read is stuff I'm teaching. 
And so I reread a lot. Like a lot of the novels I read are novels I've read before, and they're ones I really love, so I don't mind reading them. But that means I read less new stuff. And I mean new to me stuff. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. Not necessarily newly released stuff, although I'm including that, but also classic stuff that I haven't read yet, like Jane Eyre that I ought to read. It's still on my bedside table because there's always something I'm reading preparing for class. I spend more time reading like technical or you know, technical philosophy or theology than I wish I did just because it's that's also part of my job. And again, it's a privilege that I get to read. But that's not my main interest, although it's my profession, or the, at least those aren't the texts that I primarily like to think theologically with, but I still have to do them because I'm part of this guild of folks who expect me to know that information and expect me to do that stuff. I, I had mentioned that I'm just entering a sweet spot in reading, and I think I say that because like this window in my daily schedule has opened up just kind of organically where I'm starting to read just interesting books, works of fiction that I'm reading just to read, you know? Um, and it has a lot to do with Colette and I, usually we watch, you know, an episode of whatever TV show we're watching um, together at bedtime or after the kids are tucked in. And we just had like a, we had like a week or something where we couldn't get into a show and Colette picked up a book and I picked up a book and for like a couple months now we've been reading together every night and that has been this time because it was like fluff time before it was TV time I have felt liberated to just read the stuff that I want to read rather than stuff I feel like yeah. I ought to read or even stuff that I want to read but in the back of my mind I'm thinking oh I might want to teach this in the class and so I have the pencil with me just in case I want to write something right yeah. like I'm not doing that during this hour or half hour or whatever I'm just like Oh, this is just a book that has no bearing upon any of my projects or scholarly pursuits or anything else I'm thinking through. It's just a title or an author that I'm interested in, and I'm going to go for it. And that has been really great to reintroduce that to my to my life, because it hasn't really been part of my life for a while. Yeah. The most I ever read in my life was when I was living in New York City, and I had a 45-minute commute on the subway. Yeah. So round trip, I had an hour and a half on the train, and I would just read yeah. for an hour and a half minimum a day. And it was just yeah. the best, that like undistracted time. Like I really, really loved it. And I feel like- yeah. Part of me has sort of been searching for that. I loved then like looking up and doing some quiet people watching, you know, because I got distracted yeah. and then getting pulled back into the book. And there's just something really beautiful about yeah. that. The way you described it, I think, is really important because I think it is a habit. You had this like window of time twice a day and it just became part of your routine. And I think that's really important because I, I think it's a habit I lost. Yeah, I've never read more than when I started my PhD. The first few years of my PhD program was when I was reading the most. And it was, it was just all stuff that I needed to read for the degree, right? It was a lot of really kind of difficult and intense stuff. And it was not enjoyable reading, but I did not have time to to read other things. And when I did have time, I did not want to be reading. And exactly. it just kind of killed this habit I had of of doing reading for pleasure. And then it just took some time for me to like, I mean, I've, I've read novels since then, but usually it's because I was finding a time and deliberately whatever. Something about the last couple of months, like this little window is opened where it's become like this 45 minutes or this hour was just that reading practice just kind of settled into that time. And that makes it easier to keep it going and, and to kind of hold on to it. Matt, you said something particularly interesting. Everything you say is interesting, of course. But you said something particularly interesting, which is, right, that you think that reading is one of the most important things that we can do. Yeah. And I have an instinct that that is true as well. I 
feel very changed by the books that I've read. And I know that there are some studies that show that like readers are more empathetic than non-readers. And But I'm wondering if you can help me articulate the defense of spending a lot of time reading because I can certainly like preemptively understand the people who are like, you're spending your whole life with your head in a book. Go outside. Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I mean, I think it's like anything else. It's best exercised in moderation, right? <laughs> if you do it to the exclusion of everything else, then you're probably not doing the other things you ought to be doing. I saw a, uh, an article recently, I think it was in the New York Times, I can't remember where it was, but it talked about how literary fiction in particular allows folks to accommodate difference, mm -hmm. allows them to reckon with what's unfamiliar, and it leads them to become kind of more understanding, empathic, considerate, and open people later in life. If you read, especially literary fiction, it said, if you read literary fiction as a child, you are more likely to recognize that the world is complex, that it doesn't fall into neat categories, and that the neat categories we have may be useful to some degree, but they can't exhaust the complexity of the world. And I just think that's one of the things it means to be a responsible and good person is to recognize that the world is more complex than your understanding of it, and to engage with that complexity with openness and kindness and awareness and I mean, the other way to react to complexity is, I mean, we see this in the Harry Potter series. I think, you know, we've talked about it in episodes. When the Dursleys see what's unfamiliar, they want to crush it or snuff it out or, or kill it. And I think that's true of, of what, you know, the whole pure blood ideology does the same thing. I think recognizing that the world doesn't fit your categories, recognizing complexity and saying, oh, this is something new I don't understand. I ought to learn about it and be open to it and not feel threatened by it. That's like a fundamental, I think, human social trait that we need. And I, I don't think it's just your intuition or my intuition that, that reading helps one develop that. I think that, you know, there, there are like studies done by psychologists, which also yeah. <laughs> indicate that reading does help us do that. And it's something that, I mean, other things that we do can do that. Traveling can help us do that, right? Other kinds of art that we consume can help us do that. It's not the only thing that we can do. And like I said, also, you read too much. If all you do is read and you never go experience the complexity of the world more directly or reach out to those folks who are different, then you're also reading too much and not doing other things. But I think in general, it's, it really is a practice that helps people, yeah. helps people recognize complexity and difference. I mean, does that sound right to you? What do you think? Yeah, I definitely have experienced that where I feel like I will encounter someone and having read a novel about where they're from or, you know, yep. something about them. I I feel like we instantaneously have something to bond over. I'll be like, oh, I read a book that took place in Toronto. And we can yeah. talk about the four things I know about Toronto because I read a book that I wouldn't otherwise know. And it definitely puts me in the mindset of people who I wouldn't usually like if I met them in real life. And I think that some of the great things about reading to me are reading the same books as other people, which is why I think, A, people gravitate toward this podcast. I think that we've said this before. One of the great things about Harry Potter is its ubiquity, that you can talk about it with so many other people. But I know that, like, Peter and I have read a few of the same novels, and we read very different stuff for the most part. He likes crime fiction. He's a Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie type reader. Yep. and. I like romance novels, so very different. But the few books that we have both read 
right? We come back to them again and again as examples in order to communicate with one another. I just feel like it expands your language and expands the metaphors that you have access to and the anecdotes that you have access to. I feel that really strongly with my kids, you know, that you can all of a sudden be like, but like Lyra and the Golden Compass, right? It just gives you this shared vocabulary that's cross-cultural and I just look at someone like my dad. My dad is in his early 70s, and almost all that he does these days is read. And it's just interesting philosophically to look at someone who's older and who doesn't really plan on, you know, meeting a ton of new people in his life. He likes his family, he likes, you know, his grandkids and his, like, five friends, but he's not really able to travel anymore. And yet he has this like profound desire to keep reading. Yeah. He reads the LA Times cover to cover every day. He reads the New Yorker cover to cover every week. And then he's always reading a novel, sometimes rereading some of his favorite novels. But yeah. it is reading not at all for the benefit of the world. It is just reading because what one does is read. And I do think it's a sacred practice for him. I think it's... Yeah. It's just your responsibility to be an educated and up-to-date person, and he takes yeah. that responsibility seriously. Yeah. And I'm I'm just interested in that. Reading, to me, seems like one of the things that's never futile. Yeah. And yet, we can look at it and kind of wonder whether or not that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say another thing about the study, because there was one thing about the results of that study about, you know, reading, building empathy or whatever that I don't think is right. I'm not a psychologist. I didn't do the study. But I'm thinking of it because you talked about how you and Peter love genre fiction, right? You love romance and Peter loves crime. And this study made a big deal of saying like, oh, genre fiction doesn't do it. Literary fiction does. Because genre fiction, instead of making things more complex, reduces complexity, whereas literary. And I think that's just wrong. I don't. I think that. I mean, they did show people who are reading certain kinds of genre fiction, if they're reading it a particular way, do oversimplify things. Right. But I think that good examples of genre fiction make things complicated, right? The romance novels and the crime novels you like are ones which take a trope and then complicate it. The kind of like our science fiction readers among our listeners will know that there are certain kinds of science fiction which are fairly simple and straightforward or certain kinds of crime fiction where the dark-skinned person is always the bad guy, right? Like that's that's not complicated. And if that's all you read, it will... But that's not genre fiction. That's bad fiction. That's bad fiction, bad literary fiction (laughs) does that too. Yeah, that will reduce the complexity. That's right, right? But also it's not true that literary fiction is always complex. Like it has so much right. more to do with marketing than it does with with like the real complexity of a piece of fiction. What I like about the study is, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that the scientists who did it know what literary versus genre means. I like yeah. the idea of complexity, right? Like you can have something that's operating in a romance trope or a science fiction trope or a fantasy trope or a literary trope or whatever, which makes the world complex. And you can also have every one of those things Every one of those tropes can also make things more simple. And to me, that's really like the, that is the thing. It's, it's, does your reading make you see the world as more complicated than you did before? And how does it encourage yeah. you to react to that complexity? And I don't think there's a single kind of reading that either does or doesn't do it. I think the good examples of every kind of writing do it, and the bad examples of every kind of writing fail to. I could not agree more. And I mean, like, even defining what genre fiction is, right? Like, yeah, technically, right. War and Peace is a romance novel. Exactly, so right? I'm like, let's just, right, like, we reduce it to genre. 
essentially when people decide that it's like not good yeah. or marketable, right? We marketable, like use marketable yeah. and sell out very interchangeably. And yeah, I mean, one right. of the reasons that I love reading romance novels is the community around it. You know, you, yep. I can't tell you how many times I just had hung out with a woman last Friday for the second time ever. And we both love romance novels and we could immediately yep. talk about this whole world. Yeah. And I, I do think bonding with other people about what you read is one of the gifts of reading. Yeah, and absolutely. just company in general, right? Like, especially now with easy access to audiobooks, in any sort of like differentiated ability, you can read and share stories. And, yep. you know, when I'm so tired at the end of the day, I still can like get into bed with one of the kids and play Harry Potter on my phone yeah. and we can like listen to it together. Yeah. And I think for me, the most important role that books have played in my life is that they have made me feel less alone in moments of yeah. loneliness. And that could yeah. be just because I'm traveling and don't know what else to do. And with a book, you're sort of armed and entertained. Yeah. And But also, there's just like nothing more comforting to me than like, oh, I'm not the only person who feels this way. This character yeah. does too. Which means that the author could imagine that someone felt this way. Yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, <laughs> but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. I do feel like most of us who 
see ourselves as readers, become readers as children. Mm -hmm. And was there a book as a kid that you were like, oh, I'm a reader? Yeah. This is kind of a long-winded answer because it's both because of the book and then also because of the book that it led me to. If that makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? So when I was in first grade, I read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. It was a little young to read that book. And honestly, I didn't get it. But it's it's funny. Yeah. I didn't get all the jokes because there's a lot of jokes that are, right? I mean, it's actually another great example because, you know, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were marketed as children's adventure books, right? It was genre fiction of the 19th century for children. But there is a lot of complexity to them. And now they're read as literary. You know, it, it's speaking to the thing you said before, we were talking about before, about these categories not really being useful. But I remember... It's because the way you phrased the question, like, where, oh, I'm a reader. Like, I remember, like, people around me being like, you're reading Tom Sawyer. Oh, you're a reader. And I like that feeling. I like people saying I was a reader. So I was like, even though there were pages where I was like, what is going on here? I just kept reading and turned the page, which I feel like is an experience I replicated throughout my doctoral program and, and in graduate school, which is like, I don't understand this page. Just going to turn it and keep going. Right. But there were enough, like, funny moments in that book that I could understand that I kept going and I stuck it out and I read the whole thing. And Tom Sawyer led me to read Huck Finn. And Huck Finn is a problematic book for, you know, a couple of reasons. I think the the use of the N-word is is less problematic than just the characterization of Jim. And Toni Morrison has a great essay. Toni Morrison thinks it's a great book and one we need to read, but also one of the reasons she thinks it's one we need to read is because of the representation of Jim. And that's a great essay if you know, you're familiar with Huck Finn and want to see what Toni Morrison has to say about it. But I think, you know, we're talking about reading as a sacred practice. There's, for me, one of the central moments in all of literature. And by literature, I don't mean like all literature that's been written, but like the stuff I've read. Like one of the moments that just the first time I read it as a kid, it stuck with me and it has never left me. And it's still like one of the foundational moments for me as a human is when Huck, he's writing a letter to the widow to tell her that he knows where Jim is and to return Jim to slavery. And he thinks it's the good Christian thing to do because Jim is belongs to the widow and he needs to be a good Christian and send Jim back to slavery because he's a runaway. And he's 12, right? He's been conditioned to all these things by his religion, by his culture to actually 100% believe that that is the right thing, the moral thing to do. And then he talks about, as he's writing it, he's thinking about all the times that Jim was kind to him and all the times they spent together and how good Jim is and how courageous Jim is and how just what friends they've become, right? And like I said, I still remember the moment the line says, he's, he looks at the letter and he says, all right then, I'll go to hell. And he tore up the letter and didn't turn Jim in. And like something about that moment, like just knowing that this kid, this 12-year-old who's been subject to abuse by everyone around him, basically like befriended a man and was willing to, he believes he's going to hell, right? But he like, like there's something about that moral moment that as a kid who grew up religious and has this kind of, as you know, ambivalent relationship to religion, the irony of that scene, the recognition of how much bad religion can do in the world, how it can become complicit with with really evil things, but also the capacity for a person, even a child, to see the truth and to be willing to upend all that stuff and leave behind all that stuff for the sake of another person. I don't know, it's just like this foundational moment for me. And I think that a lot of the work I do now when I read novels 
or when I write theology, like a lot of what I'm trying to look for in everything I read, whether it's theological writing or literary writing, is the all right, I'll go to hell moment. Like, where's the thing where all of history has said this is the right thing, but actually that right thing is hurting a bunch of people? And who is the person who's going to recognize it and then act on behalf of those people who have been hurt? Yeah. I love that I'll go to hell then. It's amazing what those lines can do, right? Like, yeah. there's a line in Jane Eyre, I resisted all the way. And to yep. me, right, like, it's just like, I, I'm like, that is the thesis of the book. The thesis, it's like that novel is a collection of moments in which Jane resisted. And that's it. Yep. And those are the plot points that she yep. shares. And she doesn't share plot points where she doesn't resist until it yep. define a life by moments of resistance. Like, as soon as that clicked into place for me, yep. I was like, oh, right. Like, this novel's happening on it. Yeah. A totally different level. And they're just, I mean, there's another moment in Jane Eyre where Rochester says to her, and what do you think? And like, that's it. She's in love with him, right? Like there's, yep. it's the first yep. time in her life that somebody has asked, what do you think? Yeah. And so like, that is a quality that I look for in other people when they will look at you and go, but yeah. what do you think? Right? Like that is humanity. Yeah. And it's just, those moments can yeah. just really, you know, stay with you. Yeah. I think one of the reasons it stays with me is like, Huck doesn't say, I thought about it, and I decided that religion was wrong. And that actually, right? right? Like, he doesn't say, like, he actually just says, like, nope, it's worth it. Yeah. I'm not going to let this happen to Jim. Like, it's not like right. he decides that religion's wrong. And I know we don't like self-sacrifice, especially for 12-year-olds here, right? But, like, I think that despite all the not even latent patent racism that still exists in this novel, which is trying to skewer American racism, it's still all over the place, which is the beauty of Toni right. Morrison's essay about it. But just also like this child's willingness to abandon all that his privilege, like all the things that he could have to just say like, nope, for this one guy, I'm going to save him. I will give up everything yeah. I have so this guy can have what he deserves. Yeah, it's, it's super important to me that he doesn't come to a different conclusion about the way the world is. He just decides Jim must be saved and he must do it. And right. that responsibility, yeah, it just stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Jane isn't sitting there telling us. And as soon as Rochester asked me what I right. thought, I was exactly. like, wow, that feels exactly. good. Exactly. Right. Like, right. and yeah, and you can just be in their shoes. But the yep. book, I was a little older than you. I, I actually brought it because I just got my, yeah. I just found my childhood copy. But the book that made me fall in love with reading is Caddy Woodlawn by Carol Brink. And I loved it so much that I made my mom read it. And this edition, which could be purchased for $3.95 in 1992. <laughs> my mom wrote, Dear Vanessa, thank you for sharing this book with me. My favorite pages were 215 to 216. I love you, mom. Dated in May of 1992. And it's a couple of pages, which obviously then I went back and reread. I was not a young girl in the 80s and 90s who like coded very easily as a girl. Looking back on these things, I'm very proud of them, but I was the only girl in my class who didn't do brownies or Girl Scouts. I made us found a softball team at my elementary school because as girls, we weren't allowed to play on the baseball team. And this was just like a constant source of problems in my life. I didn't like wearing skirts and dresses. And I come from a larger Orthodox family where I was forced to a lot. 
my brothers were allowed to do things that I wasn't allowed to do. This was just a constant, constant fight in my life. And because of my like conservative grandparents and aunts and uncles and them wanting for me to be respectful of other people's religion, right? We would have Orthodox folks in the house mm. who I quote unquote had to be in a skirt and long sleeves because it would offend them if I wasn't. And so this... I reread these few pages this morning in preparation for our conversation, and they're pretty sexist. It's like pretty bad. But it's a scene (laughs) in which the dad is saying, your mom is so hard on you because she loves you and respects you, and she wants you to fit in in all of these like typical girly ways. And then he's like, but I love that you run wild. (laughs) And right, like it's it's not great, but also what my right my mom was saying to me was like, I know I give you a hard time about this all the time, but I do love yeah. that you run wild. Yeah. And I, if she had made a speech to me, I would have like only half listened and been like, whatever, ma. You know, like, <laughs> but, but the fact that it felt like this secret message that she like starred in a book yeah. and really meant a lot to me. And then, you know, I you fall in love with those characters, right? With Joe March in Little Women, right? Like women who are frustrated by the constructs of gender in their lives. And like the fact, right? Like I've just felt accompanied by them. I was like, okay, it's not just me. There isn't something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the world that for hundreds of years there have been women who've been frustrated like this. But the other book that then blew my mind, so this was at the age of nine, And so I sort of like became, you know, a little bit of a, a, like a reader. And then at 14, I was assigned to read Les Mis over a summer. And I really think you can draw a straight line from Les Mis to me going to divinity school. Really? Yeah. The bishop, famously, this is in the musical also, but I love it in the musical and the novel. But you like follow this bishop for like a hundred pages as he's like doing good works in bad weather. And like it's all sort of mundane good deeds. They're all good deeds. He's like taking care of the dying and blessing babies and, you know, like doing good stuff, but like whatever. And then this this prisoner shows up at his house and robs him. And, you know, this like instinct to give more than what was taken. Right. And like it does, it completely changes the course of this man's life and it just yeah. blew my mind that yeah. like if someone is robbing you rather than calling the police doing the opposite of being like oh but actually you need this yeah. other thing also and to see the need rather than seeing the act yeah and seeing the structural problem rather than the act i do not go to divinity school without like men. <laughs> yeah and in like it's sort of Huck Finn fashion just up and conventional morality for the sake of the right. person who's right in front of you which is right. like the which is a deeper kind of principle, yeah. I mean, I'm also thinking, like, it probably was that for your mom, too. I mean, like, she had heard you complain about all the stuff that, right? But getting that yes. book from you also probably communicated a message to her right. that she could hear also, which is, that probably felt very special, too. That's why she, like, I don't want to speak for your mom, but I'm sure that's why she wrote yeah. the note and why it gave, she gave it back to you and why it, it probably made a big difference to her, right? And carried the message to her in a different and more meaningful way, maybe, than the typical arguments, right? That's so funny. It never occurred to me that I handed the book to her as a message. <laughs> but well, I absolutely been, did. It no, I did. I was right? like, yeah. look, she's yeah. sad in the same way as I'm sad. Yeah, her right. mom exactly. yells at her all the time for not being ladylike too. <laughs> <laughs> and that your mom <laughs> knows, right? it's okay. 
And what a great mom to bring mom and say, like, I see you. Like, here are the yeah. pages that really made an impact on me. Right? Like, just letting you know totally. that she got the message. Right? That's, that's great. Yeah. I think that that was the moment that I learned that, like, sharing a text can be this, like, coded way to share really important information. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, Vanessa, this is a Harry Potter podcast. Let's talk about Harry Potter. I mean, one of the things that's going on is that you and I have both read the Harry Potter series before. I think you've read it a few times through because you've been doing this podcast longer than I have. But we're rereading Harry Potter. And so I just have some questions about rereading. I think one of the reasons we have such faithful and devoted listeners to this podcast is because a lot of folks reread Harry Potter, right? And then also want to hear other people talking about their rereadings of it and then are willing to reread it again and then talk about their rereadings again. What do you think it is about the Harry Potter series that makes it so rereadable? And what have you gotten out of your rereadings of the series as you've done them? I think so many things contribute to it. I think one is like the social phenomenon of when it came out and who read it at what age. And I think a lot of people got it read to them by their parents when they were little and their parents yeah. loved it too, right? So I think it just has this special place in your heart. And it was such a phenomenon that all of your friends were reading it also. And it came up with the internet. And so fan theories, right? Like there's something just yeah. about the when and how of it all. But I think that the Harry Potter books, one of the things, one of the many, many things it does so brilliantly is make Hogwarts not just feel like a home to Harry, but feel like a home to us. Mm. And so there's something, no matter how dangerous what's happening in Hogwarts is, Harry's always happy to be there, yeah. even when Voldemort is there too, and even when Peter Pettigrew is there too, and Sirius is trying to break in, and you know the Chamber of Secrets is open, and any number of things. And I think that that is how we feel about the books. It feels like going back to Hogwarts. It's this safe place that even when it's scary and dangerous, it's just a pleasure to be. And it's an insulated world and yet a complicated world and big one. And I, I just think it has all of these hallmarks. And then it 
I think it has, like Caddy Woodland did between my mother and I, I think it has all these opportunities for like secret messages, right? Of the kid who feels not included with Hermione and Neville and the kid who feels weird with Luna. And, you know, I think it has just all of these opportunities for us to see ourselves in the characters and communicate to other people. I feel like Ginny in this way. Yeah. What about you? Why do you think people love to reread this book so much? I think you're absolutely right. I think that it was this huge cultural moment when they first were released. And I think there's a generation of folks. It's more than that generation. There are people who are discovering the series now who also are falling in love with it. But a huge group of people just fell in love with it. And I think that, I think you, you like to revisit things that you, you know, like for the same reason people have photos of their wedding day, right? Like things that brought you joy, you want to revisit those things. And and I think a lot of folks, this meant a lot to them when they were when they first read them. And it's nice to return to all those meanings. I think one of the things that's unique about the series is that there, it's big enough, the world is big enough that it can accommodate new meanings and more meanings. So like it, it could have meant a lot to you when you read it, when you first read it, whether you were a child or, or older. But the world is big enough and it's complex enough that if you return to it, you don't need to see the same things for it still to be rich, right? I think, I think an attribute of, of more straightforward or simple literature is like there's only kind of one interpretation, then it's not fun to reread it because then it's, oh yeah, I knew that already. Returning to the world and seeing something else is, is what makes it rereadable. And I think the series has that. I think the other thing about it is that even the dynamic I was talking about before where literature is useful to us because it shows how complex the world is and makes us open to that complexity rather than afraid of it, right? I think that also just like is the moral of the stories, right? Like that's on the page. It's saying the safe thing to do is actually when you see something you don't understand to reach out to it like Harry does, like others do, to be courageous in that Gryffindor way. Maybe not the reckless Gryffindor way, but like when you see things you don't understand or parts of the world that are completely unfamiliar, you might want to turn away from it. But actually the safest thing to do is to turn towards it and try to understand it and try to to interact with it rather than do what the Death Eaters and the Dursleys do, which is to turn away from it or try to kill it or destroy it, right? And I think that really is a core message of the books. It's one of the cruel ironies of its author's closed-mindedness, I think, right? But I still think, you know, when we started this podcast, Vanessa, or when you asked me to do it, I was kind of ambivalent because I was like, J.K. Rowling kind of sucks, and I don't want to, I don't know if I want to read these books again. And the more I've read them or reread them, I think the more convinced I am that we ought to read them because it seems to me that the the message of the books and the message that people really felt attached to is actually this idea that that which you don't understand or that which you're not familiar with is what you need to turn towards and not turn away from. That's a super important message. I, I'd like to think that that message is also why people turn back to them yeah. because the world is unfamiliar and lots of things are happening and we're entering a, an uncertain stage of history and it's heartening to read a series which is entertaining, but also just says to you, it's okay to be scared, but it's not okay to react to your fear in this cruel way. We have to react to this fear, to your fear or to your uncertainty or whatever with openness and courage and community and all those things. And I'd like to think that's one of the reasons people return to it too. Yeah. I, I remember I was sitting on a train and a woman complained. It was the early 2000s and a woman saw a little boy reading a Harry Potter book and she went, "Ugh, all you see kids reading these days is Harry Potter. 
And I was just like, how can you look at a little kid sitting on a train reading a huge book about school and be like, ugh. Right, I know, right? It's like, yeah. there's nothing more beautiful. <laughs> I feel like it turned a generation into readers. And yeah, absolutely. That is yeah. also a beautiful thing. So Matt, we thought it would be fun if we ended with a blessing for an author who you love. And I'm wondering if there is an author in particular who you would like to offer a blessing for. Can I cheat and do two? Because I can't decide. Good, yes. Since you've been talking about rereading, I'm thinking about the people that I reread. And actually, despite my participation on this podcast, novels are actually not my favorite like literary form. I enjoy novels and like them. And teach them. The class of yours them. that I took was just a series of novels. Yeah, I teach them also. Yeah, we read some short stories in that class. And I also have some concerns that maybe the novel form reifies an incorrect image of the self and of identity. But we don't have to get into that right now. I like short stories and poems a lot. And so the two texts that I revisit most are Ernest Hemingway's first book of short stories, In Our Time, mm -hmm. and W.H. Auden's long poem or series of poems, Ori Kononikai. And I'd like to bless both of those folks. Both of them had really complicated and difficult lives for different reasons. And I think both of them wrote some things which I think are bad, not just not very good to read, but also maybe like politically or Immoral. morally, yeah, politically or morally questionable, right? But they also created two of the things that are the most nourishing kind of spiritually and intellectually pieces of writing that I'm familiar with. So like everybody else, like Dumbledore, they're flawed and they have their imperfections, but these two pieces in our time and or economic eye are probably the two that I return to more than any. So I'm really grateful for, for those pieces. And I bless Ernie and Whiston. Vanessa, who are you blessing? Oh, Matt, it's so hard. To narrow it down to seven? <laughs> to narrow it down to seven. First, I will bless Octavia Butler. Her Dawn trilogy, I was traveling around Europe and I was in Salzburg and I didn't want to leave the hostel because I didn't want to stop reading. <laughs> that is how good that trilogy is. And I, I don't feel like I hear it talked about. So if you're listening, please read it. The trilogy Lilith's Brood is just so good. And it really, I'm not a big science fiction reader, but it made me understand the power of that genre and I think is one of the most amazing allegories for the United States and race relations that I could possibly imagine existing in the world and is, you know, similar to the Harry Potter books in this one way is about love and how relationships and love are sort of, you know, with politics, the, the power of those things. And then, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess I'll do like Bronte and Austin and Louisa May Alcott together, but these like young women readers are given these like series of books of, you know, Little Women, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre. And I think that the canon needs to be expanded in a huge way from that. And hopefully it already is. I, you know, grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, but those three authors really did changed my life and so yeah but there's so many others so many others 
I also just wanted to mention some folks. I mean, I, you'll hear me talk. I think I've already mentioned Toni Morrison, who I think is the most important American author several times mm-hmm. and deserves every blessing. But I, yeah, I just since this has been kind of a personal reading practice episode, I wanted to turn to the ones that I, that I return to so often. Vanessa, this was a great conversation. Thanks for talking about reading with me. This was so fun. I like talking about books. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Iramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, Caitlin Hoffmeister, Margaret H. Willison, Courtney Brown, Natalie Fulkerts, and people who write books. Each and every one. We should talk about other stuff sometime. Yeah. Let's keep going. How about going. next week? We'll talk about Harry Potter. Okay. That's a Sounds book good. I like. Yeah, there we go.